This is Laura Van Arendongba, and you're listening to To Write and Have Written, a writer's guide to the business side. This is an audio recording of the weekly live stream where you can join us each Tuesday on Twitch. Details and a schedule of upcoming guests and topics can be found at lauravab.com. Now to this week's episode. So, welcome! As I said before, when absolutely nobody could hear me, um, happy Tuesday evening if you are with me, and if not, if you are in somewhere else, then happy time zone to you, uh, and may the sound waves bless you, and and all of these things, because I have no idea what was going on. But tonight, we are talking about the history of ramen, and this is... uh, partly just because it's fun and interesting, but also I want to to think about it as a world building exercise. So often we think about things that are, you know, as isolated incidents. And what I really am trying to convey here is everything is connected, (laughs) which you may have heard a couple of times on the show. And history is art, is sociology is geology is, you know, all of these things are blended. You really can't pull them apart. So we're going to look at something like food and find out where it came from. So that sounds really large and overbearing, but we're also just going to have fun to talk about food. So (laughs) let's jump over here and really hope that with whatever was going on, my, my slide deck is still here. Hey, look, pictures of food. That's a great start. Okay. So Oh yeah, yep, Bridger, you you slipped in just in perfect timing, just as uh, the microphone finally decided to talk to the interwebs. Yeah, so yes, it is noodles. <laughs> Grace says everything is connected. There's only one noodle in a bowl of ramen. Shh, that's the spoiler. Don't give away the twist ending. Okay, <laughs> all right. Okay, so we are going to try to get through this um, and. And yeah, and yeah, for whatever reason, the things are laid out very oddly. My notes are going to be far over here. I'm not touching anything given what just happened. So yes, yes. Oh, hey, work appropriate goth. Welcome back. We it, Tonight is all about noodles. Let's do this. So on the screen, you will see some photos. Uh, lucky, lucky me. I got to take both of these photos on the same day in the same outing. And uh, yeah, I ate so much freaking food in, in Japan. But um, Japan has a lot of really, really good food. On the left here, you'll see their famous white strawberries. They're amazing. If you get a chance to try them, please do. Oh no, Grace is hungry. Yeah, sorry, this is going to be a bad presentation for you. Um, (laughs) um, And then there's the taiyaki on the right, um, which are the traditional uh, fish-shaped pastries, um, typically filled with, uh, traditionally filled with azuki, the red bean paste, uh, which is awesome, and I love that too, um, but can be filled with other things. But as wonderful as these things are, Um, What is actually better known over here in the West is ramen. And, um, and I, I still encounter people, um, you know, the other day I mentioned, oh man, I'm really craving some ramen. And they're like, oh, ramen. Oh, and I'm like, no, no. Okay. If you've only ever encountered ramen as the, as the little cups of styrofoam and plastic, and they have some sort of salty thing inside and, and, and that's, yeah, like, that's nice. We are going to talk about that too. That's not what we're here to talk about. That's not real ramen. Please, please don't short yourself. Um, but ramen comes in a lot of different regional variations, uh, that have all made their way over here in some form. And, and so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So there we go. So what is ramen? Cause it, 
actually, for as ubiquitous as it is, it's a relatively recent development in the grand scheme of things. Um, so first of all, in Japanese, this is actually a much longer word <laughs> than we say it in English. We think of it as ramen, two syllables, as ra a n So uh, ramen, and it's, you'll notice it's always written in katakana because it is a foreign word. We think it comes from the Chinese word ramen, and by the way, my Chinese, any, anything, any form of uh, a Chinese language for me, I'm really, really bad at, so I just apologize in advance. Um, allegedly, the Takea Shokudo, which was a ramen shop um, up in the north that was a relatively famous shop, um, used a blend of Chinese and Japanese to, uh, to announce when their noodles were ready. And so that is one theory of the etymology of the word. Uh, there's a lot of things that you'll read around on the internet. Basically, the short version is it's probably related to the Chinese word for soft noodles. And if anybody tells you they know for certain beyond that, I'm just, you know, kind of going to go guess on that. So, um, but if you start looking around um, and reading about ramen, you're going to encounter this uh, uh, this story that of that was kind of developed to legitimize ramen, which is, which is a little bit funny for reasons we'll cover in just a moment. But you will read that Tokugawa Mitsukuni was the first person to eat ramen back in the 17th century. And a visiting Chinese scholar who had been exiled, you know, came over and they made noodle dishes together. Um, and with, with these ingredients that, they, that were uh, recorded, and this was the first ramen, except this probably isn't true. Um, what's funny is that, as again, as I said, this story usually gets passed around to give ramen some sort of a older heritage because it is a relatively recent development. But it's not necessary because ramen's actually actual heritage is much, much older. If we go back um, and look at the documents um, from the Shoku, sorry, Shokukuji, <laughs> Shokukuji, I ran out of, I was stressing about the, uh, about the things going wrong on the tech and, uh, ran out of drink right before I went live. So now my mouth is really dry and I'm sorry. But anyway, the priests in Roken um, were developing noodle recipes from Chinese uh, documents back in the 15th century. So even earlier. Um, and this they called uh, Taimen, and they um, uh, one particular priest was uh, experimenting with it and started serving it in 1488. And so this is considered to be the first appearance of Chinese noodles in Japanese cookery. And um, so I took this photo at the Ramen Museum. Um, of course I did, right? <laughs> so I just want to pull out this amazing excerpt. Uh, Osen, a senior of Shokukuji, visited me and stayed overnight in my house. We undressed, lay on our beds, and sipped tea while chatting. I prepared kitaimen and suggested that he eat it. We did not drink liquor, only tea. I had Yozo accompany us. We wrote and read a few poems before stopping. And I absolutely love this idea of you know, like this, basically this noodle slumber party, like, hey, let's hang out and drink tea and write poems. And oh my gosh, you brought me water. That is awesome. Thank you, Seeker. Um, and so uh, they're just they're just sipping tea and writing poems and hanging out. And, and I just think that's hilarious. Oh my gosh, that's so much better. Okay, awesome. So that, fast forward. So we've got noodle dishes 
making their way slowly into Japan, but they're pretty fringe. And even by the 19th century, they exist, but they're not super prevalent. They're just, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're in, um, showing up in low key, uh, low key society. But jump forward to uh, the end of the 19th century when we have this war between China and Japan, uh, mostly over Korea, (laughs) because Korea had been a client state of China for a long, long time. Uh, Japan kind of liked Korea's location. It's a very, very good uh, situation for defense. And Korea had a lot of natural resources uh, that Japan kind of had their eye on and ultimately ended in war. Um, There were other things too. Russia was involved, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. But there was a war. Now, at this point, uh, if you know anything about Japanese history, Japan is fresh off the Meiji Revolution. So they just had a huge modernization. They're very much um, uh, embracing Western uh, cultural uh, uh, advances at this point. so, you know, they're bringing in lots of, lots of more modern guns. They're bringing in, um, they're westernizing and modernizing their military, you know, all of these sorts of things. China is, has not been doing those things. And what's, what's interesting is uh, if you think back to uh, Perry's black ships and the forcible opening of Japan, that's pretty much exactly what Japan did to Korea. Like, hey, we see uh, that you've got this closed culture and you're not interested in outside trade, but... We actually would like that, so we're just going to come in and do the thing. So it's just kind of very much a flip there. Uh, but um, China is not equipped for modern warfare in the way that Japan very newly was. Um, the Chinese Navy is in a sad, sad state uh, because the emperor had not kept it up. There's a story, um, and actually I learned first, that the previous empress, uh, Sichi, had spent all the money uh, 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 delegated for the Navy on a new summer palace. And that's actually what I uh, learned first. Well, surprise! Um, Turns out that's probably not true. That's probably just uh, let's drag the dead dead empress's name through the mud to cover up our current mistakes. And uh, they actually have uh, some records where she left orders on how the Navy should be maintained and all of these things uh, before her death. And um, yeah, that's, you know, history, man. Um, So anyway, all of that to say that China loses this war and China recognizes much in the way that Japan had just a couple of decades before that they're going to need to modernize. They're going to need to adapt what they've been doing. So one of the things they do is they send more students to Japan to study in this more modernizing society um, and see how they've been doing it. So by 1906, we've actually peaked. They've spent about 12,000 students over uh, to, to study and... Um, just like any college town here in the U.S., um, those college stu- those students are hungry. <laughs> they want they want cheap, fast food. So Chinese noodle shops just start popping up everywhere to to serve you know all of these students, and then any you know any of the Japanese uh, nationals who would also like to um, be eating this cheap, fast food. Um, so Raiken, um, in Asakusa is generally considered the first ramen shop. Nobody really knew to be paying attention and stick a pin on it, but that's it. Um, but two to 3000 customers a day during peak times, which is pretty amazing. Um, so this is when we, those Chinese noodle recipes start to develop into what we think of today as ramen. So we're using pork and chicken bones. We're using really, um, 
rich, thick broths, and all of these things. At the same time, Chinese cooking in general was becoming more popular in Japan, um, which is helping to drive this uh, need or this desire for this new kind of uh, ramen. Um, so there's tuberculosis and cholera outbreaks that are happening through uh, Japanese society. Tuberculosis at the time was believed to be connected to a lack of animal protein and fat in the diet. Uh, so Chinese food had more of those things uh, naturally in it than Japanese traditional diet did. And uh, cholera obviously has a connection to hygiene. Chinese food is more often cooked. A lot of Japanese food was raw, eaten raw. So there was a trend to adapt more of Chinese cooking uh, anyway going on. And so you see that by the 1920s, we've got ramen recipes showing up in cookbooks and in newspaper columns and all of, all of these uh, places. So it's becoming much more mainstream. And then the great Kanto earthquake hits. Um, I do not even know how to summarize this in a, um, in, in a quick way and, and still it uh, still get across the the enormous impact. This is an incredible natural disaster. Uh, this is September first, nineteen twenty three. We know over a hundred thousand people died. If we count how many people disappeared and we never found bodies for, that number goes up to over one hundred and forty thousand people. This was a huge disaster. Uh, Yokohama uh, is a city of a half million people. It's a port city. Um, it is basically wiped out. What you're looking at here on the screen is a photograph of Yokohama. And if you notice, it's flat all the way across. That's a half million person port city, just absolutely leveled. Um, this does lead to the rebuilding of basically modern Tokyo. Um, but it was enormously devastating. And I did find this picture of um, taken at Sensoji. Uh, you've definitely seen photos of Sensoji. It's the oldest uh, it's a huge uh, shrine in Tokyo. It's the oldest shrine in Tokyo. And um, you can just, that's what it looks like today. And that's what it looked like immediately following the earthquake. Um, because of the way the winds were at the time, so the earthquake hits, a tsunami rushes in after the earthquake. Everything that went down you know, with the earthquake and then the, um, and then the flood and that, that tore apart water mains and it tore apart... Um, gas. And of course, you've got a lot of uh, natural lighting happening uh, going on. And so fires catch as they always do after earthquakes. The winds really, really fuel the fires. People are fleeing the fires. They're rushing onto the bridges. The bridges are collapsing because there's thousands of people on them. Uh, it is absolutely horrific. And then um, near, there's, a, there's an area near the Sumida River where uh, 40, 45,000 people gathered trying to escape the fires. And just because of the winds and the other things, a fire tornado develops and kills those 45,000 people just in that one lot uh, pressed together. It was absolutely horrific. This went on um, just, you know, for a couple of days, the fires were out of control, all, all kinds of things. Lots of ugly stuff happened at this time uh, that what that, is related to the natural disaster, but it was not part of the natural disaster. So as always, you've got a, nat you know, a natural disaster, rumors start being passed. Um, okay, it's the Koreans setting fires. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're cutting off the water. They're setting fires. They're, they're doing all these things. 
So some people, vigilantes, were setting up roadblocks to stop you know, people trying to escape. And if they found a Korean person, they would kill them. We have estimates that, um, I don't remember, I don't think I wrote it down, it's how many thousands of Koreans were killed at this time by these vigilantes. This actually gave a massive shot in the arm to the nationalism, which is going to show up in 15 years in uh, another war that you might be familiar with. Um, huge, huge disaster. So Tokyo's, you know, pretty much leveled um, and people uh, move out of the city to try to recover elsewhere um, while the city's being rebuilt. And so now you have uh, basically this large exodus of um, this, you know, concentrated culture. And this is where the different ramen gets carried out into other parts of the country and those regional variations begin to start. Uh, and you can trace that back to, to this. So this is where you're starting to get all these regional uh, ramens that we see today. So after this huge disaster, uh, so I'm going to check on the check on the chat real quick. <laughs> Stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, scary and holy moly. Yeah. There's, it's an amazing, um, there's some, there's some really good articles about that earthquake, um, that you can find. I think the Smithsonian has some that you can read free online on their website. There's just, it's a horrific event. So, okay. So all this happened, you know, people are trying to rebuild. Um, and there's a, one of the books that comes out to kind of assist people who are, uh, you know, destitute after this event. And it suggests set up a noodle street stall because you can get started for so cheap and you can make money doing this. And it actually says, you know, you can get 20 to 30 yen of profit, uh, every day because your, your supplies are cheap. And then you can turn this around to people who need to buy something, um, at a street stall. And it's, really, really hard to get an adjustment for 1920s yen to modern. Um, I can, I can get reliable numbers back to the fifties and then I, and it becomes guesswork. But my best guess when I was looking at this is that you're looking to clear about $14 a day in profit. Um, so I'll tell you the, the state of things there. So 1937, we have another war. Uh, so resources are really strained. The government's really promoting being very, uh, cautious about, you know, food and, you know, making sure you prevent waste and don't overindulge. And so they're suggesting like have rice and a pickled plum and that's a complete lunch. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of constraint, a lot of limitation going on. So again, we're looking for food that is available and cheap. 1941, uh, of course, we're starting to get into World War II, um, and we're starting rationing, including rice rationing, um, so noodles not made from rice are becoming a little more attractive because we don't have uh, those staples. So, um, but when World War II ends, all of those soldiers come back. Uh, all of your, of course, you've gotten a, a huge hit from, from losing the war, um, economic and moral and all of this morale. Um, and then the rice harvest fails in 45. So everything is awful is the short version. Uh, government food distribution is in an absolute shambles. Um, what I was finding was that uh, di distribution was running roughly three weeks behind. So if you're saying, hey, I need, I need to stock my store or, hey, I need food for my kids. Okay, great. We'll talk to you in three weeks. Now, obviously, this is not sustainable. This is, um, is going to get in trouble. So black market, 
becomes a thing and it becomes so much of a thing. Um, but, uh, just in Tokyo alone, there's estimated 45,000 black market stalls, uh, set up under bridges in the streets, <laughs> all of these things. Uh, so this is a photo. Um, uh, this is a 1946, uh, picture, uh, at Shinbashi in Tokyo, um, of the, you'll notice it says the Shinbashi outside free market. Free market means we're not going to bother with paperwork about where these goods may have come from, right? So while this is going on, ramen is a hot, calorie-rich, cheap food. So it's becoming very popular in, um, in this scene. And um, then as they're cracking down on these stalls, uh, those, uh, those ramen chefs, which were uh, for a long, long time up until this point were primarily Chinese chefs doing this. But now you're starting to get uh, Japanese chefs making uh, their own ramen as these black markets uh, take off. Um, so your regional variants are becoming more and more distinct um, as you know people are separating and 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 dealing with this. Um, and I liked this. Um, yeah, and uh, Shirad Fox will note this by 1945, 90% of these black market stalls are under Yakuza protection um, because, again, it is such a huge industry. Um, the, the rice is failing. Uh, the Americans are bringing in wheat um, and in post war. And so uh, you have a lot, some, some of these wheat shipments are being diverted. Uh, you know, it's just uh, all kinds of things going on. But the advantage for ramen here. It's super, super cheap. You can make ramen from things that are being chucked out by other industries. So the bones, the scraps of vegetables, anything, you can throw that into that broth um, and it becomes something that you can use during these really lean periods. Um, and then by the end of this, um, now it's legal to have these street stalls. You know, just, uh, we're, we're going to uh, just set up some rules for having them. And you can re rent uh, yatai, which are vendor carts. So a company would rent you a cart that would include the cart, the noodles, the bowls, the chopsticks, like everything you need. You'd go out, sell ramen and um, have profit at the end of the day because they're giving you basically a kit to go be a ramen vendor for a day. So, um, all right. So then we're going to jump forward. So I'm going to hop over and check the chat real fast. Yeah. Protection. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Kate, grab that pork bone, make some ramen. Okay. Um, so jump forward in 1958, Ando Momofuko, um, remembered seeing people standing in line for black market ramen. So he was looking like, how can we make, um, cheaper, more accessible food? Um, and so he invents instant ramen in his garden shed, which is awesome. Um, and he borrowed his wife's technique for tempura, um, flash frying the noodles. And so he wanted to make something that was, you know, inexpensive and accessible, but because of the way uh, it got started and he was, you know, it's a limited item. It's actually a luxury item when it first hits the market, which I think is hilarious because we don't think of like, you know, freeze-dried ramen noodles today as being a, a luxury item. But when they first hit the market, they were quite pricey. And then a few years later on, he also developed cup noodles, which is uh, what probably a lot of people are more familiar with today. And so, um, so these are there, they're, they're in the market. And then in 1972, we have the Asamo Sanzo incident. Um, this is 
another fairly dramatic story. Um, so you've got pockets of far left student groups um, in Japan, and they're not terribly popular. They're not terribly influential, but they do exist. Um, and they're having some internal strife <laughs> for a number of reasons. And one of them, uh, known as the United Red Army, uh, was they just the the chair and the vice chair decided to do uh, do some self evaluation, and then we're going to purge everyone who doesn't meet criteria. Um, and purge means exactly what you think it means. They beat eight of their members to death. They tie six to trees to freeze in the winter in the mountains. Um, the police are are moving. They, you know, there's there's conflict with the police. Um, some of the members are captured. Um, five of them flee into the mountains and take uh, refuge at a mountain resort. And this is uh, uh, a standoff. It's a hostage situation. They take the wife of the caretaker. Um, all the guests are out ice skating when they come in and take over the lodge. So they've got her and um, it's a hostage situation for uh, a week. Um, and it's a, it's a huge news event. Everybody's following this. The final day of the standoff when the police actually go in, it is a 11-hour news marathon. It's a huge, like, nonstop uh, live coverage, which is a big, big deal um, in the 70s. That's not, you know, what we had today with constant news networks. And um, so that, that uh, while the police are there in the winter in the mountains, you know, trying to keep uh, cover, keep watch on this situation. Uh, it's too cold to bring in bento or your normal, uh, boxed lunches. They're going to be freezing in this environment, but you know what you can do? You can pour boiling water into cup noodles. And so everybody on TV watched the police eating cup noodles during this, uh, super dramatic event. And it was an massive boost for cup noodles. It's generally credited for bringing cup noodles into prominence. Um, so it's one of those things like, you know, just the, the, the random, nobody would have predicted, you know, that this hostage situation would be advertising for instant ramen, but here we are. Um, so that's your, uh, that's how, that's how that went down. Um, yeah. So anyway, just, sorry, I'm going to throw out like cup noodles are not particularly great for you and they're not particularly great for the environment. So use, you know, use with, with advisement, but, but that's how, that's how they got their lunch. Um, so just really quickly, like why, what makes, what makes these even different, you know, Chinese noodles, what makes them, uh, Chinese noodles as opposed to anything else, what makes ramen ramen is that it's made with lye water. Um, and that changes the texture of the noodles. So they don't get mushy. Um, so you can get a little different, uh, texture to them. If they don't have lye sorry, if you don't have lye water, it's actually just probably going to be udon. Um, and so for people who write historically like me, um, that used to be done with plant ash before you purchased lye water as its, uh, as its own food product. Um, but now it is all done commercially, of course. Um, and then ramen uses a very, it, it's custom made, you know, specialty broth made specifically just for ramen. Um, whereas most traditional Chinese noodle dishes are using, you know, the same broth you might see in any other dish. And ramen is especially known for its umami. 
and you've probably heard the word umami. Uh, it comes from umai, which is delicious, and mi, which is taste. So it's a portmanteau of those two words. And it was identified in 1908, um, first from uh, sea kelp, and you know what gives it that particular meaty filling taste. Um, but it's an, I've been identified as there's a number of different uh, food acids that exist in a number of different products that will come together. And what's cool about umami is you don't just need, if you use one, you get you know, one, if you use two, you get two, but if you put them together, um, they actually become, they, they boost each other. And so you can, uh, what's great about Adamin is it traditionally uses many sources of umami. So it just gets more and more and more and more, uh, almost exponentially complex. So that is how we get really fantastic, delicious varieties of ramen. And now I actually kind of want to eat some, but there we go. Okay. <laughs> so, um, all right. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just catching the, catching the chat. Every cloud has a silver lining, but this one is a really freaking weird silver lining, right? Like, and this is my point is that if we're developing worlds and we're developing histories, like we need to look at all the things because there is a lot that, um, that is, is going on. Um, it, we, we like to think that, uh, uh, that everything is straightforward and neatly compartmentalized, but it is not at all straightforward and it is rarely compartmentalized. So, um, so I'm just checking through, the, yeah, going to find some ramen BRB. I know, bring some back for me. Field trip to Japan. I wish I'm so, I've got my, all my digits are crossed that I'm going later this year. If 2021 stays on target where it's supposed to, um, and everything, it gets cleared. That would be great. So, Anyway, so uh, yeah, that's my little world building field trip through uh, Daman and how everything is connected. So yeah, um, if you guys have questions, I will be happy to do my best to answer them. And if not, uh, that's that's what I had for tonight. So um, yeah, Shyred Fox, thank you. I, I, I hope I can too. And, and I'll cross a couple of extra digits for you. I've got plenty of digits we can share. It'll be good. So all right. Um, What's my favorite flavor? Ah, I don't, I usually, I'm, I'm that person who asks for the less salty ramen. Um, I find, uh, I'm pretty sensitive to salt in general and it's real easy for the other flavors to get overwhelmed just cause I taste so much salt. So I, I prefer to, I just, uh, I prefer to ask for whatever is the lowest salt broth that they have going. And then I'm pretty happy after that. But those eggs, the soft boiled ramen eggs, I hate I don't hate. That's too strong a word. I'm not a fan of hard boiled eggs in most cases. Like I will eat them, but they're not awesome on their own. But for whatever reason, you drop an egg in ramen and, and let it do its thing. And that's amazing. And you can just stick an extra egg in my ramen. That's fine. So, um, okay. So Bridger asks, and it is not remotely a dumb question because I can't answer it. So I have to really quickly raise the level of the question. How different are real ramen and, and I'm so sorry. I know it's not po, but I can't, I can't actually recall the correct pronunciation. Um, uh, but the, the, uh, anyway, so the answer is I, I'm, I'm sitting here kicking myself because I don't actually remember how to pronounce the other dish. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, you can, you can tell like where my lines are in, in, uh, 
expertise and fluency. Right? There we go. Um, and so I, I can't answer that because uh, obviously if I can't even say the name of the dish, I certainly can't give you its cultural parameters. Um, but if anybody in the chat has an answer, I will be glad to pass that question to somebody with more knowledge than me. So um, hard boiled egg, not fans unite. See, yeah, like they just but stick my nom in and I'm, and I'm all good. Okay. Huh, huh, huh. I'm, I really, I need to hear it like 18 more times. I live in Indiana. I don't get to hear it co- said correctly very often. Um, so I have very low confidence in my ability to, to say it correctly. So, okay. But Fifi and Bridger think it's huh. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. It's like Fuji, Fuji. Okay. So, um, so yes, Grace says, it's so weird to think of going places again. I actually don't want to hear that from you, Grace, because you've been able to leave your house for the last year, just because you were in New Zealand where, you know, people got their act together and we, and you were able to go out and party. So this is just pure envy speaking. That's all. (laughs) So, uh, but you, you, she says, um, Okay. Okay. Fifi's got our answer here. Huh is, huh. I'm so sorry, guys, if I'm butchering that. I'm wide open to correction. Um, but it's Vietnamese in origin. I knew that. It's a different broth and additions. So is it largely a, um, I don't think like traditional adamin is going to be an, a long, long developing broth. Like you're probably looking eight, eight hours or so to get that broth made. And is the, I'm so sorry. I'm so self-conscious about it. Um, I think, is that a much shorter developed broth and then different condiments in? So I don't, um, and, and, oh, and Joe, hey, thanks for stopping by, says has less umami. That was my impression as well, but I'm not remotely prepared to defend that statement. Oh, spicier add-ins and fish oil is typical. Hey, thank you for that information. Yeah, gaman, it should not, in most cases be spicy. There are some exceptions, some, some particular variants, but it's not uh, usually spicy. So, okay. Oh, no, she says it's a 24 hour broth. Okay. So today I learned hashtag. All right. Uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, cause uh, that is not remotely something I have knowledge in. So, okay. Hey guys, thanks for the, uh, this is, this is good discussion. Uh, I, I, I appreciate your your, uh, your input here, um, 24 hours sells it with either egg or rice noodles. Okay. All right. Yeah. Beef bone broth. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Today I learned this is great. And if I, someday I'll be able to pronounce it. <laughs> so, okay. Um, yeah. Any, any other questions or comments before we wrap up? So, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, kind of take a little a little skip through world, but I love world building. It is so much fun. Um, because you, you, because nothing stands alone and <laughs> anything you develop is going to be connected to six other things. And I really like exploring those connections. And even if they don't all come out, uh, you know, explicitly in, in the writing, um, having that web is going to make everything feel that much more real and that much more immersive. So I think it's pho, as in what the pho. Okay, I will just, huh. I will, I will try that. So I have no confidence in this, but thank you for, thank you for your coaching. Um, okay. 
Uh, Bridger's observing, um, Google is also telling me that star anise is in one of the major flavors in pho and that dog nose work has taught me that that is the spice I dislike in sausage. So maybe I will say phallus. I just like to say phallus. Thank you. All right. Good, good. Um, Oh, you got all oh, the foster kittens. Are, Grace, is, Grace has got a whole collection of foster kittens going. Always, always. Um, okay, so Shai says, um, my friend in Tokyo last night said Tokyo ramen is pretty simple and Osaka ramen is complicated and more tasty. Um, I only had it in Osaka. Yeah, that's, um, again, there's really a lot of regional variations and um, and I, I'm not going to pretend to be able to define like what you know, Hokkaido versus Kyoto versus Osaka versus wherever, you know, that, and you, of course you'll see crossover because, um, the same way that sometimes I'm in Indiana, but I get both Chicago and New York style pizza, right? <laughs> you know, like those, these things happen. Um, but, but yeah, you can find it can be quite distinct. Um, so, <laughs> okay. Like the foster kittens has taken over the chat, which is great foster kittens for everyone. Well, Hey, thank you guys for stopping by and, um, and going on my little field trip with me. I was so funny. I was, um, watching, uh, uh, online, um, uh, Momohe no Tegami, um, a letter to Momo, uh, last night, um, with a couple of friends and, um, it opens and it's just, uh, by the way, I, I can recommend it is absolutely gorgeous. They, it's still hand-drawn animation, took them years to make it. And it's, beautiful has one really huge plot hole but you don't care because it's so pretty um but it opens with just this amazing vista of japanese islands and spreading out <laughs> and i'm watching with friends and in my ear i miss travel <laughs> like i so hear that so um so that's why we were we were watching to get our get our travel fix on um okay so bridger asks what is the spiral white and pink thing in the bottom middle photo so that is, <laughs> that is Naruto, um, which is more than just a ninja anime. Um, the, the Naruto is actually named for the swirly, uh, thing that goes in the ramen and it is a commercial product. I actually have no idea how it was developed originally. Um, but that is something that you will see in a lot. It's the little swirl, uh, swirly bit. And it's, it's not like, it's, it's kind of bland, but it's cute. It's how I, how I look at it. And, um, so, okay. And Oh, it's a fish cake. Um, yeah, so it's, sorry, I'm like catching on. <laughs> I thought I was reading something else. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's just commercially made, but they've, they've got that little, um, tr you know, swirl in there just to be traditionally, I think probably cute is the wrong word, but I'm going to say it anyway. So, okay. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, all right. So that is it. And Fun, fun thing. I, my new computer arrived today and, um, my husband was actually like, I can't believe you're sitting there and not unpacking it. And I'm like, because I have my stream and there's no way I can get everything set up in time for my stream. So I don't want to unpack it. You know, I don't want to unbox it and get all excited and then not put it together. So, um, so when the stream's done, I start unboxing and I'm going to set up and I should have, um, exciting new computer. Yay. I'm so excited. So yes. Um, so yeah, Fifi Worldsmaker says that you can pick up Naruto in the freezer section of Asian markets. So that's good. Yay. Okay. Uh, thank you guys for throwing stuff in and, um, I'm welcome all the time. If you can 
add information or correct me or help me out or anything, I, I always, always welcome. That's great. So yeah, so I am going to step off and go start building new system um, and start transferring. I don't even know how many zillion gigabytes of information to my shiny new hard drive. Um, but what are we going on? Hey, thank you. I'm glad you found it interesting. I appreciate that. Oh, oh, Kate's got a how to say in the, in the chat. So I am going to go check that out as soon as we are done here. Thanks for that link. I will, I will absolutely check that out and, and, uh, and learn something. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap us here as soon as I find my mouse. Maybe I'm trapped. I'm trapped online. I can never get, never get off. Okay. (laughs) So that is it. Um, you guys, I will see you next week where we go back on the business theme. So a little less, little less fun, a little less, uh, you know, a little less field trip, but you know, um, very responsible adult. That'll be our theme next week. Responsible adult. So that is it. I'm Laura Van Arndt Baugh. This was To Write and Have Written, and I will see you next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Bring snacks because (laughs) I probably won't be talking about food, but snacks are always welcome. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Good night. Thank you for listening. You can find details on the weekly live stream, upcoming guests and topics, subscription and support information, and more at lauravab.com. Your shares, reviews, and support are very much appreciated. Until next time.